Welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. This is our October 25th, 2007 edition of the show. It's about 4.05 on the clock. We had our uh, usual opening music there, uh, the Stooges, I Gotta Write. Played something extra today, and uh, that was Dave Alvin doing... California Snow, and uh, that has a theme in it about desperate workers seeking a better life, and uh, that ties in with what we're going to be talking about today. And before we get into that, a couple quick reminders. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And I always like getting feedback on the show, so you can send me an email rglarson at org. You can also hit me up on MySpace. That's myspace.com slash outtherabbithole. Today we're going to talk about a shocking new book called Nobody's Modern American Slave Labor and the Dark Side of the New Global Economy. My special guest is the author of that book, John Bow. He has won several awards for journalism and has contributed to The New Yorker, GQ, The New York Times Magazine, The American Prospect, NPR's This American Life, and he was the co-editor of GIG, Americans Talk About Their Jobs. John Bow, we got you on the board. Yeah, you got me right here. All right. (laughs) Great to have you. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a really powerful book. And uh, many people, uh, or I should say most people I've talked to or told them about this new book of yours, Nobody, Nobody's, uh, they're they're, uh, shocked. And, you know, so you're saying that many foods and products that we all consume and purchase from major corporations are often being produced by people who aren't being paid for their work and are not really free to leave. That is true. Okay, so... I am not saying that most of the workers are quite in that bad of a situation, but that most of the things you're putting in your mouth, you know, made in America today, are coming from some workers who are in that situation. And I'm not kidding. I know, I know, and, and it's, it's, it's really... It's intense reading the book, and, and there are uh, three, you divide it into three major chapters, and one is about a situation in Florida, and one uh, is in Oklahoma, and then there's one in a place that many Americans are probably not even aware of, this called Saipan, which is part of the North, North Marianas Islands, is that correct? Mm-hmm. It's an island chain south of Japan that we took over during World War II, uh, and we have owned it ever since as a commonwealth. But yeah, in each of those situations, um, I found workers who were not just mistreated, but who were enslaved. And you have to be very tight in your definition of that, meaning it's not my definition, it's the definition of a court of law. So in each of these cases, it's, you know, a federal court, the gavel came down, yes, slavery. And we're talking about workers who are, you know, not just mistreated or called names or paid low wages or have a bad life, but we're talking about where their bosses beat them, uh, kill them, kneecap them, rape them, or threaten to do so in a credible way. So you're talking about workers who are held on the job with the very real fear that that stuff is going to happen to them if they leave. Uh, so, yeah, this uh, it, you went over these cases in Florida. Now, now is this, this is still going on to this day in, in some respects in Florida? 
Oh, yeah, not just in some respects. There have been six or seven successfully prosecuted cases in the last few years. Now, for one case to be successfully prosecuted is a miracle. It's very, very hard for the federal government, for the prosecutors, to be able to get these cases together. They're almost impossible. So for every case that's successfully prosecuted, there are dozens of other cases. So let, yeah, give us a little rundown of how, how this happens, how a person comes to be a slave on a farm in Florida. Okay, well, the case that I wrote about uh, seems fairly typical. Uh, some very impoverished Mexicans, you know, who are not, not, they're no longer able to earn a living to provide for their family back in Mexico. They come up through Mexico, they cross the Sonora Desert into uh, Arizona. There's a, a coyote waiting for them there, a guy named Shorty. Now, they don't know Shorty's real name, and they don't know his business or whether he's a good guy or a bad guy. People keep real low down and keep to themselves. So Shorty says, wait here for a couple days, wait here in this shack, I'll come back and I'm going to give you a ride to Florida. Now, they don't even know what Florida is, they don't know what their job is going to be, no one talks about anything, and especially not wages. So Shorty comes back, he piles 35 of them into a van, drives them for three days, they don't get out of the van to eat or go to the bathroom, they wake up and they're in the swamps of South Florida. Now like in any rural area anywhere, you're way out in the middle of nowhere, you don't know where you are, you don't know how you'd get away. They let him out of the van, and there's this mean-looking guy whose name turns out later to be El Diablo, who turns who's going to be their new boss. And El Diablo looks them over and says, "Well, you guys owe Shorty a thousand bucks for the ride. Do you have a thousand dollars to pay him?" And they all, of course, say, "No, no, no." And Shorty says, "Well, I mean, El Diablo says, fine. Why don't you work for me, and and I'll pay Shorty, and you can work your debt off to me, and you're going to work for me, and if you try to run away, I'm going to kill you." I'm going to feed you to the alligators. And so thus begins their term of employment for El Diablo. And, of course, they're they're working, you know, 10, 12 hours a day, six, seven days a week, and they're not making any money, and they can't leave the area under his control. He's got, you know, watchmen who watch all the time, Uh, the guys who hang around there hear stories of people getting beaten up or killed for trying to leave. There's a van service that's like a legal underground van service that ferries around these workers from town to town moving with the crops and these guys driving into El Diablo's territory get beaten up and in one case murdered for just daring to pick people up and move them somewhere else. So it's this total, total atmosphere of fear. For those who don't know any Spanish, El Diablo means the devil. <laughs> so right. Just to, uh, now, now if we drove through there we would just see, oh, this is a poor, depressed agricultural area, those poor migrant workers. And you see their, you know, ramshackle housing. You see these rural migrant ghettos with trailer homes with, you know, ten guys living in one trailer home, three guys in each room. But you don't know the difference in passing by, nor do cops or, you know, most labor investigators or anybody. If you are walking around, you don't know the difference between the typical bad situation and the really bad situations. So tell us how that globalization has been a factor in this kind of situation arising. Well, the book makes it slowly makes its way towards a kind of questioning of globalization. But before going there, I think I don't want to make any claim that globalization has that much to do with 
slaves in agriculture. Uh, agriculture has always been a low-down business. They've never modernized, you know, like the automobile industry. You've never heard of slavery happening there. No. That's a decent manufacturing job where people earn a decent living. You know, if you get hurt on the job, they're going to take care of you. So it's, it's only these industries where there aren't any protections where you see these slavery cases. And, and agriculture is famous for being the worst, you know, mass-scale employer in the country. They brought us slavery the first time, and they've had ten different ways of having cheap labor ever since, like prison labor, tenant farmers, et cetera, et cetera, you know, guest workers. Exemptions from minimum wage type Exemptions things. Exemptions from minimum wage and workman's comp and all of this stuff. So it happens again and again there, so it's not a surprise that that's where you're going to see the most cases. Um, and in that industry, it's so systematized that it's you know, ridiculous that no one's holding the people on top accountable. So in, in the story that I wrote, I sort of follow the money chain all the way up to Tropicana and Pepsi, which owns Tropicana, and you see how much... They know about the conditions in the fields. They know the sugar content of the orange, the moisture content of the soil, the price of orange juice in the spot market in Sao Paulo and Chicago and New York. And somehow they don't happen to know whether their workers are being paid. And when you ask them about it, they say, well, we, it's not our employees. We don't know. And that's the part that I would argue is criminal they always blame it, you know, if there ever is a trial, if anybody does get caught, it's the labor contractor at the lowest level above the workers, who is undoubtedly Mexican, and off he goes to jail while the system goes along the same way year after year. So there's a plausible deniability, or, or actually it's kind of rather implausible, <laughs> but, but legally, it, it works legally. It works legally, but I mean, it was amazing at this trial, there was a very conservative judge and the most interesting moment of the trial was when the bad guys, El Diablo's lawyers, uh, brought these biggies from these citrus companies. These are private growers. They're, you know, $1 billion companies that supply Tropicana. And they just were grilling these guys saying, you know, come on, you, why don't you call these guys your worker? They pick in your fields. They pick your product, which makes your money. You tell them where to go. Why are you relying on this fiction? of having the labor contractor be their employer. You're their employer. And they keep saying, no, 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 no. And it's and the judge was just, who had not, his face had not changed expression the whole time, just was riveted. I mean, he was, just, he was laughing at these guys. And at the end of the trial, he said, you know, I don't know why we're wasting time with the El Diablos of this world when obviously the money trail goes right to the bad guys. That's where the real bad guys are living. You make this point about this sort of willful ignorance, or it's like, you know, these guys know this is going on, but but they just pretend that it's not. But you you also, you know, put it on all of us as well, that we sort of know as consumers, or should know, that many of the products we're, we're consuming have these kinds of things going on, but we just would rather not look at it. Well, let's put it this way. Americans pay less per capita for food than any other industrialized nation. Uh, in Spain, they pay about half again as much. In Sweden and Japan, they pay about twice as much. So American consumers are getting a pretty good deal. Uh, I, during the middle of this book, I started to get very paranoid and thought that maybe I was being a freak and finding slavery where other people would just call it labor abuse. And I started calling around phone numbers at random. And I was asking people, what do you think of migrant workers and 
you know, how do you feel about them? And everybody was very aware. You know, I probably made a couple of dozen calls, and every single person I spoke with was aware, like, oh, yeah, we know they're getting the shaft. We've driven by them. We've seen them. We've seen pictures of them. So, you know, connect the dots. You see these people being mistreated. You know that many of them are here illegally. You know that agriculture has always been rough. You know that these people aren't being protected by many laws or many cops or many labor investigators. You know, and then there's some cheap orange juice at the store. So if you actually hear about slavery cases in orange juice, and you also see stuff showing up, you know, tomatoes picked by workers who aren't paid, and those show up at, you know, chain restaurants. So you do have to ask, how good do I feel about this, about putting stuff in my mouth that is picked by slaves? And now let me just clarify something. The average farm worker in this country makes about $7,500 a year and dies at the age of 47 from pesticides and stuff like that. So we're talking, that's the average. So I'm talking about the way below average guys. Like how do we feel about eating stuff that's coming out of a production chain that's that gross and distorted and cruel? So, A, you know, I don't like it. I don't think most people like it. And then when you talk to people in the corporations, they don't really like it either. But they're too defensive and too afraid to do anything about it. And that's where consumers come back in because ultimately that's where it starts. If, you know, there's a group that I write about called the Coalition of Immokalee Workers who are this fantastic group that organize thousands of workers and they teach them about labor rights and human rights and the law in the U.S. and minimum wage. And these workers go out into the world now, instead of being scared little peons, they have a sense of what's what and they'll fight back if they run into a bad situation. So these guys have marched and staged boycotts and uh, first they started out with Taco Bell, and for years Taco Bell said, no, 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 no. Of course it was ironic because it's Mexican food picked by Mexican slaves. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and for years they didn't acknowledge that there was a problem, and they kept saying the same thing, it's not our employees. And, uh, you know, President Carter joined the boycott, all these student groups and church groups joined the boycott, and eventually they won. And Taco Bell devised this plan with... Uh, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers and the student groups, to pass back an extra penny a pound for the tomato pickers who supply them. And in the end, they only had to pay a few hundred thousand dollars a year. It doesn't amount to that much, but it doubles the wages of these workers who are, you know, the most pitiable of, of all. And so then the same thing happened with McDonald's. This group went after them, and they said, no, 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 and eventually they said, okay, and the same thing. So now this group is taking aim at Burger King. And I promise you, if the listeners of your show would pick up the phone and call and say, like, hey, what's up with the slave labor? Or write an email to Burger King's website and just say, I heard you guys have slave labor. It doesn't actually take that much to get these corporations to get religion. And so for years, you know, everybody's sitting around groaning and saying, oh, corporate America is so horrible and they've ruined our lives and they're taking over the world. And I think that's kind of lazy, actually. I think if you spend a couple of minutes a day being active about these things, you can have a real effect. And one by one, these companies, if they're confronted by unhappy consumers, they'll get religion. And so you don't even necessarily have to uh, get involved with a activist group. You can just do this individually, calling these corporations, emailing them, and asking them these types of questions? I think that's a place to start. I mean, you know, when I first started doing this, I was, uh, 
I thought that I was very liberal. And when I was around these groups who were protesting, I realized, ooh, I don't really like protests, and I feel like this is sort of corny and outdated. The truth is, protests are still extremely effective. There's nothing a company wants less than TV crews filming protesters outside their headquarters talking about slavery. So if you've got the energy to actually go physically be at a protest, I'm not kidding, even if it's just a couple hundred people, it's still tremendously powerful. Uh, and if you're not into that, then do what you do like to do. If you like to email or if you like to make phone calls, I mean, just call them up and harass them and say, you know, read my book or go online and look at the Coalition of Immokalee Workers and look at all these foods that they cite. Like, it's amazing. Cucumbers and potatoes and apples and, you know, really just about every single crop. Working conditions have gotten so bad that we're seeing these slavery cases. Uh, this is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson uh, speaking today with John Bowe, and we're talking about his book, his new book, Nobody's Modern American Slave Labor and the Dark Side of the New Global Economy. And so I'm sure if we wanted to uh, send a copy of your, your book to any one of these uh, corporations, you'd be okay with that, uh, John? I, yeah, <laughs> a sale's a sale, and especially <laughs> if it lands in front of the right eyeballs, I think that's terrific. Uh, so yeah. So other thing. What about uh, say in our local communities? If we have farmers markets where we know the people who are growing the food and we know that they're picking it themselves, and, and is that a good thing to do to be buying that instead of stuff that may be being produced by slave labor? Well, you know, it's it's weird. You, yes, I think stuff from family farms and small local operations. There's always a very different way of treating the workers. I don't want to say always. But most of the time, because the scale of these modern industrial farms are just immense. And so you have people being managed by people they never see. You have these end users like Burger King, uh, like Walmart, who are tremendous. And they are so big that they exert so much downward pressure on the people who supply them that they, in effect, tell the farmers what they're going to pay. So if you're Walmart and you're buying 20 bazillion pounds of tomatoes each week, and you tell a farmer, no way, I'm not paying 12 cents a pound, I'm paying 11 cents a pound. The farmer who's got these ripe tomatoes sitting in warehouses all over the country can't, doesn't have much bargaining power, because if he wants to sit around and argue, those tomatoes will rot. Mm-hmm. And so Walmart sets the price, and Burger King sets the price. And I would read this again and again in trade magazines, where you realize this isn't free trade anymore. These guys are so big that they set the price. And so it's this very irrational system. It really isn't the free market where people are equal players and pushing and pulling and fighting for their right to get the best, best price. It's a sort of squeeze play. So the pressure gets pushed down, pushed down. Of course, it's the least powerful people in the food chain who are going to get it because they have no legal recourse. Yeah. And what's interesting, too, is how little money it would cost to make the system be more rational and more humane. I mean, we're not talking about a big change at the cash register. The average consumer would barely notice it. The companies would barely notice it. It's really just a matter of putting your foot down and saying, okay, you know what? We know farm work is never going to be a great job, but let's keep it from being a disgusting, horrible job. Let's actually just make this be a priority. We don't treat people like slaves anymore. You know, that's a decision we made 145 years ago. Now, do you ha- have any numbers, say, like if we paid 
farm workers X amount of dollars, that would raise the price of your food by X amount? If you wanted to, one way to put it would be to say the average American household would have to pay about 50 bucks a year to make it so that every farm worker in America receives the minimum wage. Like it's legitimately paid for all of their hours, no labor abuse, nothing. 50 bucks a year. So that's not that much. That's a few mochaccinos over at Starbucks. You so, know, that's like a dollar a week. Yeah, dollar a week. Now, of course, I don't know why consumers should be the only ones to pay that. We also pay some, I don't know, what, $47 billion a year, by some estimates, in subsidies for agriculture. And agriculture is the second most profitable business in this country after pharmaceuticals. So the money is clearly there, whether you want to make consumers pay a little bit more or make the companies profit just a tiny bit less. You know, it's just we need to spread the wealth a little bit more fairly, and that's... So, so it's interesting because that sort of led me to these bigger conclusions about slavery. Slavery is not rational. Slavery is actually this very irrational thing. It's the product of people behaving stupidly. And, not, and so I went from thinking this is really cruel, what we're doing to the poor people, to thinking on a bigger and bigger scale, this is really stupid, what we're doing on a bigger scale. You make this interesting observation about the the devaluing of labor and how allowing people to work for very little or no pay brings down the value of labor for all of us. And you talk about during the time of legalized slavery in the South, poor, uneducated whites could not get jobs that would pay anything because work was being done for free by slaves. And also that, like, in today's dollars, slaves of that era would were worth more than slaves are today. Could, could you explain that a little better than... Well, let me I, break that into two different parts. I mean, the first part is, yeah, this is what's so bad about slavery. I mean, we're not talking about hundreds and hundreds of thousands of slaves. We're talking about a couple of dozen... Who knows? It's like a, the, the State Department estimates it's about 15,000 people being trafficked into this country every year. I don't want to get into numbers because who knows? Who knows how many incest victims or drug addicts there are uh, the point is that any employer who's using slave labor, or for that matter, just really abused labor, has an advantage over the good employer, someone who's trying to fly straight and play by the rules. And the same goes for workers. If you have an honest farm worker, you know, who is happy to be a farm worker, and all of a sudden other people are using slave labor, his wages get pulled down. And other cases that I write about in the book, we've got higher-level workers than farm workers. You know, welders, American welders who make 15 bucks, 20 bucks an hour, are all of a sudden being confronted with employers using slave labor that they bring in from Thailand and from India, and all of a sudden these American workers start getting fired. Now, at the same time, you've got this weird group of politicians like Dianne Feinstein and Ted Kennedy on the liberal end and President Bush and the American Chamber of Commerce on the conservative end, and they want to increase the number of guest workers by about five times that we bring into this country. And those workers aren't exactly slaves, but they're not free either. They're not free workers. They can't change jobs. They can't complain. They can't unionize or organize. And so that's a whole new devaluation of a whole new half million workers every year. And you see why working-class Americans are being threatened on many, many different sides. So there's globalization where we're being pitted against the labor of Chinese people who make 60 bucks, 70 bucks a month, and they cannot vote. 
They cannot organize. They can't go out into a street corner and shout out their opinions. And we're being, you know, pitted against these unfree workers here in the United States. It's like, this is all going on under the name of free trade, and it's actually this real threat to our freedom. So for me, the more I looked into it, the more I just thought, wow, there's this massive transformation happening in the mind of every American who can afford to think this way. And this includes me, by the way, which is I don't have to pay 30 bucks an hour or 20 bucks an hour to some union guy anymore. I should only pay 3 bucks an hour. And by gum, I'm doing someone a favor by giving them that money. Well, if everybody thinks like that, you know, how long does it take till three bucks an hour really becomes two fifty an hour, really becomes two dollars an hour, and it's just really everybody going down this black hole that leads us really far away from democracy and the kind of society that we want to have. Well, yeah, I think also even if you're bringing down wages in an industry that's not related to the type of work that you do at all, eventually it sort of comes around because the economy is all sort of connected. Wages being brought down in one industry can ripple off into others. Is that not true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. The second case I write about is in Tulsa. There's a a guy who owns a welding factory who brings in some Indian welders under a legal uh, visa. Actually, he he commits fraud to get the wrong visa for them because it's easier for him. Uh, But he legally brings them into the country, you know, under a legal permit to be here. And uh, he pays him three bucks an hour. He starts firing his American welders. So what happens to those American welders? Well, they go off and they take jobs for seven bucks an hour or whatever at Starbucks. And that's how it goes. And when I asked this guy, you know, he defended himself to the hilt saying he was just trying to help people. He was a, he was a great guy. He was a benefactor, blah, blah, blah. And he was always bitching about the American government, you know, being on his back and all these regulations and stuff. And I said, well, look, you know, you're complaining about globalization, but you're contributing to it. You're, you're displacing American workers by hiring these foreigners. You're part, are you part of the problem or part of the solution? And he got genuinely frustrated, and he said, you know, I don't know what else to do. And that's kind of the problem right now. We're stuck, I think, as a country with this idea of free trade and globalization and there was just a poll that came out a couple of weeks ago. Most people now in most first world countries see globalization as a big threat. In the U.S. alone, 69% of Republicans see globalization as a threat to our way of life. And this is reported in the Wall Street Journal. So these are not exactly communists reporting this stuff. So we've got a problem. Everybody sees this thing happening. It's like global warming. You know, but what are we going to do? Yeah, it, it, now is not the the gap between the rich and the poor I- in this country as great as it's been since the Great Depression? Uh, it is. I keep here. I've been hearing for a couple years it's as big as it was in 1920, and now I've seen the first couple reports saying it actually may be as big as it was in 1890. So we're going back to this gilded society thing, and there's a really great quote from uh, Justice Lewis. Brandeis, who was a Supreme Court justice back in the 20s, and he said, you know, you can't have an increasing divide between rich and poor and have democracy at the same time. You can have one or the other, but you can't have both. 
Uh, yeah, it, it makes perfect sense to me, and it seems like we, we've seen how that leads to disaster a couple of times in our history, uh, the Great Depression being the most recent, and uh, we, we don't seem to learn the lesson. And it's, uh, it's frustrating, and I'm glad uh, you are uh, putting this information out there in your book, Nobodies, Modern American Slave Labor and the Dark Side of the New Global Economy, so people can sort of reframe this. Uh, John Bow, uh, can we uh, take a little musical break, and then we'll be back for some more discussion and for about up until about 5 o'clock, John? Sure. Okay, we'll just go to some music here for a couple minutes. This is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson. Uh, that was the music there of Steve Earle, another song about the desperation of workers in our modern situation and uh, what they're often driven to do and uh, the effects of globalization and other factors. And uh, that is uh, our discussion today with John Bow. His book is Nobody's Modern American Slave Labor and the Dark Side of the New Global Economy. Uh, John, uh, had you heard that song before? Nope. Oh, yeah, it seemed to have a uh, bearing on what we were discussing here. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the, you know... Uh, it's weird just... how many people actually know about this stuff um, and think about this stuff. Remember I told you I was calling around uh, people at random. The very first woman I called said... And I, was, I didn't even tell her I was writing a book about slavery. She just started going, and she lived in northwestern Kansas, and she started saying, oh, yeah, things are getting so bad. Everybody's just chasing after these low prices. They'll put their neighbor's store out of business to go shop at Walmart, even though they know that it's going to put them all out of business. Everybody's just become a slave to the almighty dollar, and it's going to lead us back into slavery. And this is coming, I mean, she told me my whole book better than I, <laughs> you know, better than I had conceived of it. And, and it's something, you know, even it's not a left versus right thing or a, a do-gooder thing versus a horrible corporate person. People really do think about this stuff. I've been getting at least as much of a response from the, from the conservative people as from the liberal people. Um, you go look at the founding fathers and all that stuff and how they were basically, they just had their eye on any large consolidation of power. And it didn't matter whether it was a corporation or a church or the mean bully next door, you know, or the federal government. So these people, these NRA kind of people who are like, don't, I don't want the federal government telling me what I can and cannot have in my home, or anti-corporate protesters in Seattle, you know, anti-globalization protesters, they all have more in common than they know. People want to be free. Well, it seems like it's the it's the worst of both. You have the big government and the big monolithic corporations all together against the workers. If, 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 I mean, that's a little bit sim- oversimplifying, but you know, it the these monolithic corporations would not be in the situation they're in if they didn't have government backing. And, and you know, government has taken money from them in in the form of campaign contributions. And it's just we're all sitting here watching things get worse and worse for working Americans. Yeah, it's true, i got to say, uh, and it's amazing to me just how cheap a deal the corporations get with our politicians. It really doesn't cost much to buy a couple of those guys. Um, but but the thing that I guess I'm focusing more and more on is instead of complaining about the problems, it is really up to regular people to do stuff. Uh, you know, no one in any society has ever had a free pass. You can't just sit on your thumbs and hope that the world is going to come be nice to you. That's not realistic. 
Uh, a lot of these groups that I write about, and uh, you, in each of the stories, there are people who are taking incredibly brave risks to free themselves or free other people and educate people and mobilize and, like, really break through whatever is holding them down, and it's pretty inspiring. Uh, there's a group that I told you about called the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, and they have joined with something called the Campaign for Fair Food. And you can Google them and find out what they do and find out how they do it, and it's fairly simple. It's fairly straightforward. There are a lot of other things we could do, too. I mean, I think everybody just thinks, oh, it's so horrible now. There's nothing I can do, so therefore I'm going to do nothing. And I think you have to get over that idea and realize, well, I'm not going to take down the whole economy. I'm not going to take down globalization or corporate America single-handedly. But you can spend two or three days, I mean, two or three minutes a day making a phone call. Make a prank phone call to whatever corporation bugs you the most and ask them, you know, hey, can you guarantee me that there's no slave labor in your in your food production line. Um, I have a friend who used to work for a big advertising company. They spent millions of dollars making an advertisement. Uh, I won't go into detail on that just because he'll hate me if I do, but (laughs) they really did spend millions of dollars making a couple of ads for some product, and they had a focus group, and there was one old lady who said, I don't like these ads because I think they're ageist. And she was the only person who had that opinion, and they pulled the plug on the whole thing. And so I don't think we realize how sensitive they are, how vulnerable they are in some ways. Their brand is everything. If consumers get pissed off and say, you know, wow, we heard that you are benefiting from slavery, we don't like that, what are you going to do? It really doesn't take too much pressure for them to get religion. So if you think that you can just sit around and feel bad about all this stuff but not do anything about it, sorry, those days are over. Well, yeah, that's that's good advice, and I I think uh, for many people listening, or just many people in general, to be willing to to get out and do something, they need to to get um, <laughs> outraged first. And and, and I, I want it, so that's why I want to talk a little bit more about some of the situations. Let, let's talk a little bit more about Saipan, you know, because you got some people are, are just ignorant about about the situation so so tell us a little bit about the history of saipan and how it came to be what it is today and some of the things going on there okay saipan's this uh very lovely tropical island three and a half hours south of japan it's part of a chain of islands that we took from the japanese in world war ii and we kept the islands and we eventually made a deal with them if they wanted to be part of the united states you know we brokered a deal with them what did they want what did we want we want to keep those islands, you know, for refueling stops on the way to whatever Asian war we might ever get into. But the, the islands played a huge part in the battles, you know, with Japan in World War II. Um, anyway, because these islands are so far away from the U.S., we gave them all kinds of special provisions so that they could bring in workers from other countries to build the hospitals and schools and infrastructure that we were going to provide. And there was nothing sinister about any of that. It was a good idea. However, the locals didn't know what they were doing, and the federal government really wasn't helping them much by lending a hand or lending much oversight. And so what happened was all these Hong Kong and Korean garment manufacturers realized, huh, we can set up shop inside the U.S. Oh, I'm forgetting something important. We gave Saipan, and officially it's known as the Commonwealth of the Northern Marianas Islands, we gave them the right to set their own minimum wage and their own immigration. 
So what happened is you had all these foreign countries flocking there and setting up sweatshops with foreign workers and doing it all under the flag of the U.S. and selling stuff that said, you know, made in Saipan, USA, which to most people just looks like made in USA, uh, paying, you know, a dollar and a half an hour, and the minimum wage eventually rose up to $3 an hour. But what it produced was this two-class society very quickly, and it took very little time for there to be 50 or 60,000 of these guest workers, maybe 50,000, and only 25% of the people were locals. So they had U.S. passports, and they walked around like kings, and these foreigners did all the work. And what it's a great study of is what happens when you have a really unequal society. Well, you get a ton of abuse. You get a lot of rape. You get a lot of uh, guys using girls who want to get papers. You have a lot of prostitution. Uh, you have just this, let's put it this way, these, these people have been part of the U.S. for 30 years, and they don't work as waiters or busboys or house painters. Uh, I did know one local car mechanic who rocked. Um, But by and large, they just thought, you know, manual labor is not for us. And it was sort of like how the U.S. is becoming, because now we've got Mexicans and Guatemalans and all these immigrants to do all of our work. And so it's just an interesting study on how these attitudes harden so quickly. You decide, I cannot be a busboy. My kids cannot work as waiters. Even though I worked as a waiter in high school to pay my bills and pay for college, my kids can't do that. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing. Just very quickly, you think, oh, well, that's work for foreigners. That's not work for my kind of people. And what's interesting is you look at the net effect of all this, it's horrible. It's, it's very bad for the economic development of the island because the regular people, again, like you were talking about, the regular people can't compete with these foreigners. These kids from, from the island, Saipanese people, I got to be friends with these people because I lived there on and off for three years, they graduate from high school thinking, well, what do I do in this world? There's nothing for me to do. I can't go out and work for $3 an hour. That doesn't even buy a gallon of gas. And so there's this real sense of hopelessness, and people devalue work, and they devalue each other. And it's, you know, I write about it much better in the book than I can talk about here, but you just see these transactions between people, and everybody's scheming because everybody's so unequal. You know, and you just learn what the attitudes are like in an unequal society. It, it just seems like there's a lot of energy wasted in trying to find some sort of scam or keep somebody else down and, instead of just doing honest work. And Yeah, there's a real sense of honor in everyday things that gets generated by fair living conditions and fair equality. And believe me, I'm not, even, I'm not a communist. I'm not a socialist. I like capitalism. I like the fact that I like class warfare. I like poor people trying to get rich and rich people trying to stay rich and people having a good, fair fight. I have no problem with that. But when it's a really unfair fight, it's just an ugly and kind of boring world uh, that just sort of smells of disgust all the time. It's just deeply unpleasant. I mean, I really felt like going there and being there was a, a trip back to antebellum South and hanging out with, you know, white slave owners in the South. And, of course, their attitude all the time from the benefactors of this situation, or the beneficiaries, I mean. It was always like, well, you don't understand. You're from outside. How could you possibly understand our complex civilization here? <laughs> yeah, so the, the, the people who, who seem to 
apologize for this, and and I guess uh, Tom Delay and Jack Abramoff will come to mind. We we can talk about that. But you know, they they have these buzz phrases of of you know free trade and uh, and. Uh, globalization but it's not really free as as you made the point that that was there's not an even playing field and and people who talk about these free markets and free trade it's it's a lie and and we we are not competing equally and and so in there are these monopolistic monolithic entities in place that we have no chance of ever uh, being able to be equal with them in any way at all well, let me, let me back up. And one thing that you said was, yeah, Tom DeLay and Jack Abramoff, I forgot to mention. And this, Saipan sort of got going with these garment factories in the 80s. And by the 90s, they were generating all kinds of stories of horrific abuse, like forced prostitution and, you know, lots of workers not being paid and being forced to work in these horrible sweatshops. And uh, the locals didn't know how to oversee this explosive growth and the U.S. Department of Labor wasn't doing a good job of going out there and policing it. So it just metastasized into this horrible thing. And so all of a sudden you're seeing shows on ABC's 2020 and Reader's Digest and all over about slavery there. So the island hires Jack Abramoff to protect them from overzealous federal regulators who would want to come in and change the deal. And in the end, they pay him $11 million to protect this place with a horrible labor track record and human rights track record. So this was where Jack Abramoff and Tom DeLay got their game on, which they later, you know, moved on to the Indian tribes, and that's where they made even more money. But these guys were flying out U.S. congressmen, and all of these guys from the Cato Institute and the Heritage Foundation, all of these right-wing, free-trade, you know, laissez-faire, and even conservative Christian groups, and basically all of these guys would fly out there on junkets and play some golf, and half of them would go screw around with the girls in the nightclubs, and they would call these fact-finding missions and then go back with a tan and tell their constituents what a great place Saipan was and what a laboratory of liberty it was. And Tom DeLay said a couple of famous things like, this is my little Galapagos Island, my little Petri dish of capitalism, free market capitalism. <laughs> and he even said, this is a fine example of what conservative Christian and Republican principles can do if only they're allowed to be put to work. So it was just the height of hypocrisy. You know, there was nothing savory about what these guys were doing. Uh, I mean, I've been at this place, and I do think that some of the claims about the place were actually sensationalized. But even if you remove that, you know, that with the way of life there is like it's just totally antithetical to the American ideal of all people are created equal. Right. And, uh, and you uh, you talk about these metaphors and, and, and the people who defending this or defending sort of globalization in general they they like to use this this metaphor a, a rising tide lifts all boats but when you really look at this it often seems that that the metaphor uh, you mentioned in the book that, that the metaphor a race to the bottom is more appropriate. I think so yes and I think you know this is what I saw everywhere almost that I looked at slavery and this is going back to colonial times when uh, the Spaniards were enslaving American Indians. They didn't call it enslaving. They were Christianizing them. They were helping them. When the white colonists brought Africans over, they were not enslaving them. They were taking them away from these horrible, sweaty jungles and bringing them into the benefits of white civilization. The people that I read, that I write about in my book, uh, the guy 
in Tulsa with the welding factory. He really, I think, earnestly believed that he was helping these Indians because, you know, he didn't look at the fact that he was breaking U.S. labor laws. He looked at the fact that he was paying these Indian workers more than they made in India. So how could he be a bad guy? Yeah. And I think you see this again and again, and I think if you look at that on the macro scale, we would like to think, oh, we're helping all of these Chinese workers. Well, number one, we're hurting American workers and first world workers, which is why people in the first world are starting to turn against globalization. But number two, you know, there are just billions and billions of poor people. When these Chinese workers start to complain and say, you know, we need more than $2 a day, we're going to be working 15 hours a day and being locked up. Uh, we want $3 a day. Well, guess what? They go from eastern China to western China. And then in western China, when they want 3 bucks a day, they go to Bangladesh and Vietnam and India. So this is an endless cycle downwards if it is allowed to continue. And, you know, mm-hmm. you look at it for a while and study it for a while, and you realize that just there are more poor people than there are jobs. So at a certain point, you just have to start thinking, okay, let's make some limits here to how far down this thing is going to go, because that, I mean, that's what my book is about. That race to the bottom, I'm looking at what the bottom looks like. Mm-hmm. It's, it's slavery. It's misery. It's yeah. not a good deal, and it's not free. No, and, and your book is Nobody's Modern American Slave Labor and the Dark Side of the New Global Economy, John Bowe. Uh, it's, it seems that the middle class uh, in America was doing much better when the New Deal and the Great Society had not been whittled away when unions were stronger, when corporate regulations were stronger, when we didn't have these quote-unquote free trade agreements, when antitrust regulations were enforced, when merger mania hadn't arisen. Uh, We have, you know, Dennis Kucinich is, as far as I'm concerned, the only presidential candidate who's really addressing any of that. Do you think he is being too simplistic, or do you think some sort of new New Deal could be just what is in order? Um, I think that is just what's in order. I mean, people say, oh, if you want to impose a global minimum wage, for example, they say, oh, it's too complicated. That's really complicated because, of course, you need to do it based on the per capita income and the per capita spending power in each country. And it is incredibly complicated, but so is a spaceship, and so is a Nintendo game. And we did find developing those, and, you know, you work on it for a while and you work it out. It's not the end of the world. It's just not that hard. Another complaint about that is that people say it would involve rich countries like us imposing our will on poor countries. Well, you know, I think that happens Anyway, <laughs> we're already doing that, aren't we? <laughs> so I think, you know, if we're going to tell other countries to treat their poor people better to protect, you know, working people everywhere, if that's us being really horrible, then bring it on. I think we should be as horrible as we can be. That would be a nice thing to be remembered for. That's the kind of America I like to think, you know, when you talk all this American rhetoric and if you could make it real, it's a great you know, it's a great bunch of ideals, all that equality and liberty stuff. But well, it does take work, and it takes continuing evolution to really make it real. Well, I think trade agreements have always been used as leverage. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we used them in a way where, like, look, we're not going to trade with you if you don't impose uh, proper minimum wage uh, standards for your workers and proper environmental standards? You know, <laughs> I don't know. It seems like we could do that if, if the will was there. Well, I mean, again, though, that will's got to come from regular people, you know, people listening to this show. When I wrote the book, all I had were complaints. 
and oh, what a horrible world this is. And now that I've been going out and talking about it, people keep saying, so what are we supposed to do? And I'm trying to come up with more and more stuff people can do. You know, here's another thing. Now that the Democrats have taken control of Congress, uh, why don't we call up Ted Kennedy and George Miller, who are on top of the labor uh, committees, and say, hey, you know how the Department of Labor and OSHA and EEOC have been deprived and weakened since Reagan got elected in 1980? Why don't we restore those budgets? Why don't we give the Department of Labor the $82 million that Bush cut a couple years ago to look after farm workers? Because if a farm worker, this is something I wrote about, if a farm worker in Fort Myers, Florida, calls the local Department of Labor, he gets this, like, 18-minute-long English message babbling on with all of the kind of cases they do cover and don't cover, and then at the end it says, by the way, we're open only from 8 in the morning to 12.30 on Wednesdays. (laughs) Now, any farm worker is, of course, working during that time. And so what we're really saying is, bug off. Uh, and this is a part of the country that has 300,000 Spanish-speaking workers. So opening doors to some of these people to participate in our democracy is an easy and cheap thing to do that not only protects them, it protects the rest of us by keeping the ceiling, you know, keeping the floor from going too low in this race to the bottom. Well, yeah, so everybody, you have to get involved. You have to uh, get off your butts. Uh, complaining is not going to do it. You know, get get informed and uh, get out there and do stuff. Uh, John, do you have any websites you'd like to give out that where that people could, uh, would be a I good place? I feel like a heel saying this. This is the first time I've actually said this, but I've been working on a website of my own where I just collect other stuff from other people that I think is cool and helpful. Okay. Uh, so John Bow, what is it, www.johnbow.info. Okay, johnbow.info, and they can find good information there on how to get involved and, and not just be a complainer. Yeah, right, because I think that's really important. I mean, if, you just take, if your takeaway from all this stuff is, oh, everything sucks and I, I can't do anything about it, that's not really helping anybody. Well, uh, John Bow, I want to thank you very much for uh, writing the book and for being with us today. Okay, well, thanks a lot for having me on the show. Okay, and again, that's Nobody's Modern American Slave Labor and the Dark Side of the New Global Economy. You have a good day, John. Okay, you too. Have a good night. Bye. Bye. All right, yes, John Bowe. Excellent book, Nobody's Modern American Slave Labor and the Dark Side of the New Global Economy. Shocking book. It, it, it'll put you on an emotional uh, roller coaster ride, but ultimately, I think things like this are, are empowering because it, it makes you realize there is a problem there and we've got to do something about it. And, and John just gave you uh, um, some information on how you can get involved. So, all right, we're uh, pretty much out of time here. I want to let you know in two weeks, uh, next week, not sure what I'm going to have, but in two weeks I will have Naomi Wolf, and she has an amazing new book called The End of America. You're uh, going to want to check this out. It's about America's uh, movement towards fascism and what we can do about that. So that's The End of America. Naomi Wolf should be on the show in two weeks. And we got in just a few minutes here, we got Your Dog's Breakfast with writer Paul Meir coming right up, and that'll be good as as always, I want to remind you that the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And also, if you want to give me some feedback, that's rglarson at KUCI.org. You can also catch me on MySpace. That's MySpace.com slash Out the Rabbit Hole. I'm going to uh, say this is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, also on the web 
at KUCI.org and leave you with some music from Johnny Hickman. And I'll be with you next Thursday at 4 o'clock.